We're dead center in the middle of a series on the relationship that the church and Christians should have to society. And we've been dabbling around a couple of issues. In the first week, you remember, we spent some time just asking, should Christians even be involved? We limited it to two discussions. Should we even be involved in protests over a mosque? Should we even be involved dealing with issues about same-sex marriage? We just asked the question to get your feedback. In the second week, what we were trying to do was stay away from a certain temptation which is so often when we talk about the relationship of Christianity and society, we have this tendency to kind of read the two into one another. And we talked about the roots of this idea about a Christian nation and how so often we end up supporting a civic religion that really doesn't look anything like Christianity. And we spent some time tearing that down. Just this week, by the way, in the September issue of Christianity Today, they asked a question that was very similar to the one we asked, which was, when Christians pray in a public forum, should they pray in the name of Jesus or not? You can tell there was a lot of people who wrote in on all different sides of this. Some took the position that, of course you shouldn't. That kind of stretches the bounds of constitutional freedoms. I, I, I read into that answer a little bit that in their ordering, the Constitution was somehow higher as an authority than maybe whatever mandate was. That wasn't really even the question. It didn't say... Like, is it constitutional? Just said, should Christians do that? And, of course, others responded that they must do that, and there were people in between. I just thought it was interesting that even as we talk about this issue, there are others who are wrestling with the exact same thing. I'll give you the website if you want to look it up. I'm sure you'll all go rushing out there to read those things. Last week, we started to look at the different ways to engage. So last week, we were really dealing with, should we withdraw? Should we kind of stand apart somehow to be a distinct witness in the world? What really should we do? Or should we attempt to impose our views somehow or get involved? A lot of you didn't like the impose our views language. So I decided to use a little bit different language tonight. Maybe it'll help us. Let's go back for a second. Tonight we're focusing on can we even change the culture? Can we? It's really focusing tonight on ability, if we even have an ability. Here are the books that we're reading. If you want to read along, these are the ones that I've used so far to get us this far in the series. Tonight, what I'm really focusing on is this book right here. It's written by James Hunter. James Davison Hunter has written this book that has really been the talk of a lot of academic circles lately. Uh, he's written this very interesting critique, and we're going to be using a lot of his material. So a lot of what I use tonight is relying heavily on this book. Out of the five books I've gone through so far, if I was going to recommend one, this would be the one so far. This is the winner, I think, of at least something interesting to say that hasn't been said before. I'll summarize some of those views. You can decide whether you uh, want to make the investment and go a little bit deeper. I cannot do much justice to the amount of information he contains in this book. I'll try my best. Okay? That's where we're going. So when I refer to Hunter tonight or J.D. Hunter, we're talking about James Davison Hunter and his book, To Change the World. The Irony, Tragedy, and Possibility of Christianity in the Late Modern World. Here's where we were last week. So I just kind of put up some place markers. These aren't the only solutions we could come up with, but I just asked where you were. Like, should we just withdraw? Should we somehow seek to be distinctive, standing apart? What Stanley Howaross has called the Christian colony, that's kind of the way he set it up. Now, most of us think, colony, that sounds like ghetto. That doesn't sound really good. That sounds like we're somehow going to live apart from the world. Yeah, there is a little bit of that to be set apart, to somehow set an example, to be a faithful witness. And then there's the last one we talked about last week, do we engage? That's a positive word. Do we transform? That's positive. Do we impose our views? Nobody liked that word. <laughs> Nobody likes that word in a postmodern context. So here's some examples that we had. Like the classic sense of withdrawal might be the Amish. Like people who just see that the best way to deal and preserve faith and live it faithfully is just to withdraw from the world and live it in a faithful community. And we even commented, there may be some positives to that. Some of you, if pressed far enough, might actually prefer that to maybe losing all uh, ability to practice your faith. We talked last week about John Howard Yoder and Stanley Hauerwas taking kind of an Anabaptist middle Mennonite position, if you will, that really is about the standing apart and setting an example. We talked about that, and some of you seem to like that more then the imposition view, the engagement view, until we changed what it was we were talking about. So maybe when we were talking about same-sex marriage, it was like, we just need to kind of be the church and just live out our mission. Let's not get involved. But then when we switched it and said, what if the subject was slavery? 
then suddenly some people were more inclined to want to get involved because it seems like some issues we should get involved in and some issues we shouldn't. So I actually would just make the observation that it's not easy to stand in these distinct camps. Because I think if we change the scenario, you would say, no, that is a place we should get involved in. That is a place we shouldn't just live out a good life. Somebody afterwards brought up the controversial one to me and said, what about the subject of abortion? Like there are people who feel so strongly that it's the killing of innocent life that to just say, well, we'll just live out our community a little differently. Somehow in our community, we'll just show a better example. They thought betrayed an, an, an ethic that maybe we should be involved when we feel like innocent life is being killed. All right, then it just means that you've got one of those difficult choices to make as to which one's in and which one requires engagement, which one you're just going to set an example by. I'm not going to comment on specific ones, but you could see that we haven't really come up with a nice, clean way to do it. Tonight, we're going to be focusing on the traditional view a little bit about this engagement. And specifically, the question is, even if we engaged, would it make a difference? The best way I could summarize the traditional view among most Christians, and I say most, across the board, across ideological perspectives, I would say, whether you're a right-wing Christian or a progressive liberal Christian, it seems like you share at least some view, although I will say that the quotes you see on the screen or the summary you see on the screen is probably going to come from more of your conservative camps, but here's the view. We as Christians can change culture if we change the hearts and minds of individuals. Great ideas, worldviews, form our values and move us to act. We redeem culture from the inside out, from the individual to the family to the community and then outwardly to society at large. I say that this is probably the view across the spectrum because if you just typed in the search words into Google that says, change the world and Christian, you get a host of organizations across the spectrum in every type of activity, whether they're missions organizations, churches, parachurch organizations, evangelistic outreaches, justice organizations, everybody it seems across the spectrum can change the world. All we have to do is, and then read the rest of their mission statement. Everyone is out to change it somehow. So the question is that I want you to just kind of mull over right now, do Christians today even have the ability to change society and culture around us? Is it possible? Can we do it? If so many organizations have this goal to somehow change the hearts and minds of people or do certain things to change the world, is it possible that we could do it? Is it even a worthy goal to pursue? Yes? It's a good question whether we talk about individual Christians or the church. And I said at the beginning of this series that I'm going to kind of leave it to both because I think it will encourage more discussion. Some people have said you, there is a distinction, of course, between individual Christians and the church together. But let's just say for right now that we're going to say Christians working together and through some organization, just so that we make it a little bit more palatable. In a church, in an organization, through a connected network of Christians trying to achieve a certain goal, could we do that? Could we somehow change culture and society? Yeah. Well, I'm thinking of like individuals. There are examples of people who have completely changed culture, not like forever, but during their time periods, they changed cultures. Like I hear, I don't, I haven't read very much on my own, but I've heard of people who have had revivals, like in Britain, where people were always in the pubs, and then all of a sudden they're all in the churches. That kind of story. Um, so the idea that people are so changed that they're not in their old their old habits, their old lifestyles anymore. Okay. Really? Yeah, I think there's historical evidence to uh, back that up. Um, places like, uh, for example, uh, Korea, South Korea, where it was mostly, I guess, Buddhist or Confucius. It seems that more and more people down there are now uh, evangelical Christians. And uh, most of the people that I've met from there seem to have really changed from what their culture used to be. In fact, I went out to dinner with a couple from South Korea not too long ago. And they were telling me that they were Christians and uh, that their lifestyle changed completely from what their culture dictated before. So I think it can happen on a large scale and 
if you look at the world and you look at Christianity's effect throughout the world since the Roman Empire, that would definitely be true. Let me stop for a second just because I want to be clear about something. I believe that Christians can affect people. They can affect, for example, they can bring the gospel message. They can change people's lives. We could see transformation. We could see healing. We could see justice. I'm not talking about that. I want to just take that off the table for a second. So what I'm really asking is, can they change the overall direction of the culture itself and society? Because if, if we cannot, or if this is more difficult, remember we started this series with the idea that certainly the church must be doing those things, like proclaiming the gospel, like engaging in worship, like bringing people into communion, like all the things that we would normally associate the church doing. And those sound like examples of the church living out what the church is supposed to do. That's great. The question beyond that, though, is should we just stick to doing that? Or do we have a shot in any way, do you feel, at changing the overall culture? And we focus a lot of our conversation so much, and it doesn't matter what country you're talking about, but I want to think about, like, you know, so that we see, like, the whole culture of a nation or a group of nations, or maybe just our nation, somehow shifting. In terms of our nation specifically, as disheartening as it is, I don't know that Christians, because of the division between the church and how there's such disunity even among our own members, I think it would be incredible if the entire Christian movement could come together and have an impact on society. But I feel like it's so broken that that kind of unity and revival wouldn't be possible with the church in, in the divisive state that it is in today. So you think it's possible if the church wasn't divided? If it could come together, there's a lot of churches in this country that proclaim the name of Jesus. And if they could put their differences aside and come together as one body, I think it could have a tremendous impact on the culture of this. Okay. Phil? Well, I definitely think like, Christians have the means to change culture. Because even if we look the last like 200 years, Christians in America have changed the culture so Christians in America are hated. Like, it, it, maybe unintentionally, but like that wasn't a culture, like, and now it is, and that's because of Christians. Like, and culture only changes through people changing it to some degree, and usually it's a group of people trying to do something. Sometimes it has an unintentional effect. So whether those people are Christians or not, like people change it. So yeah, Christians can change it, but it, it also depends on what they're trying to change. Like, the Christians are going to try and change culture so that people aren't greedy. You know, like, come on, like it's. But that's a great example. I mean, like, if you stand and say that in this country you have a majority of Christians who, if asked, you would say, do you think that your Lord supports greed? They would say, no, absolutely not, just the opposite. So then why then is greed such a component of our culture and our societal norms if so many people are self-professed Christians? Shouldn't we at least eradicate something that, even though we're divided, everybody would agree is not part of the teachings of Christ. Why can't we get that out of our culture? And that really is the question I'm asking. Like, what ability do we have to attack those kind of cultural things that seem to have greater force in all of our convictions combined? But that's a little bit different, because that's assuming the majority of people in, um, like, the United States are Christian and profess that they think greed is bad, which isn't true. Like, which part isn't true, by the way? Of probably course. both. Um, that they're not a majority of Christians. Yeah, and that even those people that are probably don't think that greed is necessarily that bad. Um, and I don't think it's just the United States. I mean, like, people are greedy everywhere, um, I think. And so, like, that idea of, like, changing something that big that is, like, the desire to have things, to be selfish, like, that seems a lot. But I, I don't know. Like, things can change and have changed in, like, big ways. I just don't know how that's done. I think... At least historically, it seems like Christians have changed cultures in some ways in the past. But it seems like a lot of that time is like when it coincides with um, power. And so if people have power to do things, then it's a lot easier to change in culture. Um, but if you're a minority, that's a lot less likely. Um, like, do Christians have the means to do it? Like, well, what, what about God, like, God through Christians? Or is it just, like, Christians going out there? Or I, I think to divorce Christians of God's power would be, like, 
kind of just to make them a people group. So are we asking, like, can God use Christians to change culture? Like... The reason I don't want to ask that question is because then we can say God can do anything, right? And then we'd be back to the God can do anything. It doesn't really solve, like, can we today? I mean, you're right. That's a very good place to go. And I actually want to go back to your power comment for a moment because it's a very important observation. You're using power in a broad sense, and I want to make it even broader. People who look at cultural change see it as the intersection between momentous people and ideas and times, but also institutions and power that was behind it at the same time. So, for example, last week I was talking about how troubled I was about a withdrawal attitude or even just kind of a stand-apart attitude when I see an example like William Wilberforce who actually stood up and opposed the slave trade. But this week I actually did some research into the history behind that. You know, when you see a movie like Amazing Grace, you think, wow, this one guy, he was just so tenacious, he just ended the slave trade. But if you see the economic forces behind it that were already going on, that's not to take away from the fact his moral conviction of standing up against it and persisting for many, many years to get this done, but there were other things going on. The power structure was shifting at the same time. So in a way, he was kind of riding a wave that was starting to move and he was helping to direct where it was going to go, but the absence of that power or that other institutional shift that was going on makes it difficult to just assume that he could have done it without that. We don't know. It's possible. But all history seems to point to these very momentous people and ideas that show up at the same time as already there's kind of a cultural shift going on. Monique? I mean, I think the idea, like if we're talking about culture and changing culture and society of like a Christian utopia or somehow we're going to like take over and it's going to be this like massive movement like while it could happen I find incredibly unlikely like it's just it's never going to happen. Why? Because there's always going to be a push and pull there's always going to be sin in the world there's always going to be fall even within Christian communities like you're going to see this but I think it's kind of a, a misguided focus because just because we might not see change as like this huge utopian movement of like the whole world now loves God as one, whatever, everywhere, doesn't take away the value of like the small change or like the small pockets that we might be creating in different countries where people can find God or like the individuals that we touch. And I think in those small ways, it does kind of affect culture. Like you're going to see it and it's going to be a, a tug of war. It's going to be a push and pull. It's going to have ebbs and flows, but it's still valid. And so like I see that, but the idea of like, this Christian utopia and changing like everything in our government to like to be what we think is going to fit into God's view and like ever like that's just never going to happen. Well, let's pick specifics. We already talked about greed, but the people who profess this view most often, for example, would be let's say somebody like from Focus on the Family. For example, they would stand against like broken families. Okay, let's say let's take a few. Let's say they would stand against like abusive relationships, no fault divorces running rampant, pornography in society. Okay. Let's say that you have an organization that is saying we need to change the hearts and minds of Americans. We need to somehow change the culture. We don't want this in our culture. And do you think that we could stop those things? No. Okay, so we're not going for the utopia. I just want to be clear. You just don't think we can even stop those I things. Think, I think, it, but see, I think it, what they're doing could have value and they, they could reach like uh, some families and they could make differences. But like on the whole, no, it's a war they're not going to win. Okay. Morgan? like MLK and that movement. I mean, there's, there have been millions of people in this country who would have never, you know, thought of the day that there wouldn't be segregated schools. And so, not, it's not to say that happens often, um, but to think that those things can't happen, that seems, you know, ridiculous. And, and, and there was a deep spiritual aspect to that whole thing. I mean, that's kind of like Wilberforce and, and things like that. You have, I mean, of course you have, it's not like they eradicated racism. You know, I mean, racism is still reality in the world. But, I mean, most people in America would not, you know, outwardly say, yeah, we need to go back to segregated school. And if they would, most people would be like, are you not, you know, I mean, that's awful bigotry, you know, that sort of thing. So I would say as a whole, that movement helped to substantially change race relations in this country. And there's long, 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 long ways to go in, in those things, but it's big. <laughs> It's still a substantial thing. Okay, the only word I would look, I would focus on, because I accept everything you said, but I would just add the word today. Because I think that my pushback would be that the 1960s and what we saw as a movement of Christians in the civil rights movement, some would even argue wasn't really a Christian movement, but let's just move beside that from that. Let's say it really was motivated by genuine faith as well. All right? That, that was 50 years ago. 
and we have no ability to repeat that again would be the counter. But I don't buy that though because you have people like Will Force. I mean, this is what I mean when I said it's extraordinary. It's not going to happen often. It's not going to happen, you know, I mean, and there was extraordinary leadership as well. So, I mean, you don't know what the issue is going to be. You don't know what the person or people who really change things. But to say that it can't happen or to say that it can't pop up here and there out of nowhere. Okay. The change begins here tonight. I'm announcing my candidacy for the mayor of Azusa. We're going to start the revolution from Exodus. Yes. Jeremy. Um, I don't know, though, I, not that I disagree with Morgan necessarily, but I think that there are other mitigating factors in the 1960s that also, like there are political movements and there may be economic factors, right, that, that were also going on at the time, kind of to tie into what John was saying about Wilberforce in the sense that, like, it wasn't just one guy's crusade or it wasn't just a spiritual thing, like, so, I mean, and that's always the hard time, like, uh, like apartheid in South Africa. It really ended because we cut off economic business with that. I mean, and, and that's what's so sad and frustrating, right, is that there's, there were whole movements, spiritual movements and religious movements there trying to end this system. But when our government, part of our, our government made the decision to stop trading with South Africa, you know, the system fell apart. That's more disturbing more than anything else that, I mean, I don't want to be a cynic and say, well, the only reason these things change is because of money or economies. but. It is interesting to see that like these shifts in society don't happen in like a religious vacuum. They happen along with it. And I'm not sure which has, I'm not sure it's a case that one is more important than the other, but I think it may be saying too much to say that it was like, a spiritual thing. I think that would be, that would, and, 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 and my other comment would be that like, I'm not sure where the borders are for culture and society and where the borders are for religion or spiritual things and economic like that's a very nebulous thing to say like who's doing the changing who's being changed but couldn't couldn't some of the church's role is to be a loud enough voice that other people pay attention and that other things happen because public pressure is put on governments to pull the economy you know all because i agree with the nebulous I but i would say though that it, it, it wasn't like christian culture that changed it let's just pause for a second to remind ourselves why we're having this discussion if it isn't christians at all in the mix then we should just stay busy proclaiming the gospel, taking care of the, like all the things that are the church's mandate that we talked about originally. But I would say that even if they were providing the leadership or what maybe Morgan was hinting at, like the, the proclaiming voice that begins the movement, even if they don't have the ability, they're still playing a role. And that's the question we have to keep asking. That's the reason we're doing this series. Because this series could be summed up in a sentence like, if we can't do it, let's get back to what we're supposed to do and stop meddling. If we can, then how? How do we focus it in the right way? And if I hear what Morgan is saying, that even if these shifts are going on, but there's a prophetic voice coming out of the church to say, I see this, now is the time to push, or now is the time to proclaim, or now is the time to set by example, and the walls come down, then that is the role of the church in those instances. It may be hard to discern, that's a practical issue, but still, we're saying in those cases it might be worth it. Megan. I mean, Jeremy probably had me beat in terms of knowing the history of the end of apartheid, but when we talk about this, it makes me excited to think about the role of Christians in the world. And like, to me, this is why like, I want to know, I want to understand business, I want to understand economics, because I feel like part of Christians having an impact is being able to work through maybe non-Christian avenues like that. So that, I guess, gets me excited to figure out like, how do we understand what's going on in the world so we can bring about change, not just through prayer, but also through, like, you know, very practical things like that. I guess to me, and this might be oversimplifying it, but when we talk about do Christians today have the means to change culture and society, I feel like we know there are millions of Christians. We know that there are some incredibly intelligent people and dedicated people, and to me, that, like, those facts in and of themselves make me say, like, yes, we must have the means, because there's so many of us. And to me, I guess the question is, assuming we have those means, why aren't we? Or how do we do that? And what's funny as well, I'm sorry, is you know, you're talking about like, I'll proclaim it now, like the revelation starts here, and we chuckle a little bit. And so that's what makes me say, well, it, do we really think that we can change? And instead of chuckling, like, let's go kick, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but why, why don't we start from here?
Can I use your comments to just forward a little bit in the discussion? Because they're actually right where I want to go for a second. Then I'm going to, you guys can still come in because this is the only really open question tonight. We're going to keep coming back to it. You really are talking about the means and you're actually talking about the institutions and the things that would you refer to as the non-Christian avenues, but really are the, the institutes of culture like business and law and academia that people use. Let's look at what has been done. This traditional view kind of uses this language, just so I can give you some more here. For example, redeeming the culture, advancing the kingdom, building the kingdom, transforming the world, reclaiming culture, reforming culture, changing hearts and minds, changing the world. By the way, these are all picked up from mission statements of these organizations, both on the right and left, both progressive and conservative. They're all kind of in this idea that we can do this. If you go back to this idea about changing hearts and minds, it seems like the idea is if we can just change individuals, they will change families, who will then change communities, and over time that will change society. It's from the bottom up. It's kind of a grassroots democratic idea of just, we can get people and then everything will change, but we have to get to people, the hearts and minds. We have to somehow reach them. Here is Hunter's critique of this, and it goes right off kind of an answer to what are the things that Megan was talking about. When I say the empirical failure, for those of you not familiar just with the word empirical, so we're not using obtuse language, just like we've seen in the experiment or in the review of history as things have played out, is this really true? Here's some things that he points out. In this country, Orthodox Christian believers far outweigh any other grouping, whether liberal or secular. I mean, if you just took people who follow a fairly traditional Orthodox view of Christianity, they're by far the majority over liberal Christians or just people who have no faith at all just declare themselves to be secular. And yet, you could look at it and say 86 to 88% of Americans claim a belief in God. Now, we all know from looking at statistics in the room that it does not mean that all of those are orthodox or traditional. That's just people who say, I believe in God. But still, a great subset of that would be orthodox Christians who far outweigh the others. If that's the case, then why is everything in our society, as Hunter would point out, intensely materialistic and secular? I'm talking about today. We still have today a majority of people who proclaim a belief in God and a substantial number of people who claim a very vibrant faith. And yet, that doesn't seem to affect any of the institutes of our culture. Business, law, government, academia, pop culture, pop entertainment seem to be devoid. In fact, as he points out, intensely secular. Why is that impact not felt in those places? That's the question. We see traditional faith is in a steady, observable decline. It's not even like, hey, we might wake up someday. Like, we can see it declining. Despite all of this population of people who claim at least a belief in God or a very traditional view of Christianity. Even Christians, he observes, have a markedly decreasing impact on culture. We're not reaching anywhere, and I'll show you some points in a moment as to support that, why he makes that statement. And finally, all the convictions we have, no matter how strongly held, have not won the culture battles. They've actually only resulted in frustration, anger, and retaliation. Who made the retaliation point? Somebody said that all they've done in the end is cause people to retaliate back against us. So these convictions where you rile up the people and say, if we could just change the hearts and minds of this generation, we could see the eradication of all this godlessness, this pornography, this filth, this, this, and you get all these people riled up. It doesn't happen. They're angry and they're frustrated. And by the way, his point would be probably the culture ends up even retaliating all the more for the people who are protesting. I have to say Hunter is kind of a controversial figure in some ways because he states his case so strongly. So push back on it. Feel free. Tell me where you disagree. I mean, I understand his idea, but from the very beginning, the Orthodox Christians saying they far outweigh, like, that might be true to some degree, but it's also those people don't really, aren't convicted or believe or act upon their beliefs as Orthodox Christians. Like, and I think that that's the key factor more than anything else. It's not that individuals can't change families and families can't change like neighborhoods inside, like that has nothing to do with it. It's just those people don't care, like that they're not really Christian. Like I think that's the more important fact. That, like that's why all those other things fall from it. 
I'm going to play devil's advocate with you because Hunter's position would be that's what traditional Christians always think. They think that if people just believed it strong enough or if they actually became convicted believers and returned to like this orthodox faith, then it would change the world. And the problem is that most believers don't really believe it. The reason I critique that, even without Hunter's background, is because we've talked about this confusion that happens between, let's say, conservative Christians and conservative Republicans and how they kind of meld together. So on many of the points, they want to do the same thing even if they aren't Christian. So for example, like for all the yelling and screaming about some of the ills of society, right? I mean, remember we looked at a college last week that was saying big government is, you know, those Colorado Christian University stood against big government, right? That was one of the things in their mission statement. But the government keeps getting bigger, right? So the, even if they don't believe it from a Christian standpoint, they believe it from some standpoint. Even if it's just a traditionalist, conservative, whatever perspective, it seems like all those people have all the convictions It's still not making a difference. So that's why I would say that, yes, it's true. I believe that if people really were completely true and gave themselves away to Christ, we would see changes in their lives. The critique would be, I don't know that that would result in a change in the culture, though. Anyone else? Ray. I think if you look at the second plus bullet point, Christians have a markedly decreasing impact on culture. And I have to say that I feel like that's because culture is having a markedly increasing impact on Christians in the sense that as I feel like our culture gets increasingly more hedonistic and live for the pleasure and the time that you have here on earth, I feel like that's steeped into Christianity where people say it's okay to want to live a prosperous life. It's okay, and you know, like that's the hedonistic culture having an impact on Christianity and seeping in there and saying it's okay to live like culture instead of Christians being actively against that and saying no, actually a lot of those hedonistic principles are against culture or against our Christian beliefs. Okay, Jeremy. You know, I mean, I hear stuff like, you know, we're this and hedonism and yada yada yada, but it, it's always been that way. I mean. I think the rhetoric of we got to change culture society ties into the rhetoric of the end times yeah. and all this other rhetoric, and that's all it really is. And I wouldn't say it's like theological even. So you know, it's, it's just interesting to me, like when I hear that you know this, 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 it's like yeah, it's always been bad. I mean, it, there have been there has been no point in human history where it is worse or better. Can I correct that? Actually, most sociologists believe that what conservatives whether Christian or just, you know, secular, what they're really pining for is not so much an end times resolution, although that's part of it. I mean, I don't deny that theology really drags part of that movement way far afield. But most sociologists look at it and say what they're really doing is pining for a mythological view of America about 50 to 70 years ago. So it's kind of an idealized view of the way things are. And if you go back and look at movements, because conservative movements by their nature are trying to conserve something. That's where they get the name, right? So you're always looking back. It's a constantly moving one. So maybe if you landed somewhere in the 1800s, they'd be pining for something in the 1700s or whatever it was. But certainly most sociologists looking at today's modern conservative movement would say, yes, they're looking for an idealized view of America somewhere in the 1950s you know, and to return to that level. So I, I just want to make that corrective so that it isn't just the end times view that bothers it. Let me push forward real fast to show you some things. Hunter points out that in contrast to this, look at other groups, two groups that he specifically points out in his book that have tremendous power in our country, who statistically are very small. Jews make up 3.5% of the population and have a significant effect on the culture. He actually cites a couple books in there that have just gone into how is it possible that this group has so much influence in our culture, in the arts, in the sciences, in, I mean, if you just look at the list of Nobel laureates, it's statistically improbable if you were just to say this happened randomly. That such a small group of people. The other group of people he cites that are a very small group of people in America are gays and lesbians that make about 3% of the population. So what his question really is is, with these two groups wielding this inordinate amount of influence on the culture, it can't be just quantity. It must be something else. It must be either that we don't know how to use those institutions or we're not represented. Because if you look, other groups can't figure it out either. Like, for example, I was looking at some research into, like, blacks make up about 13% of the population. Hispanics make up about 16% of the population. So statistically, we're talking about four or five times those two other groups and yet not nearly the amount of 
ability to wield influence in the culture. So again, it seems like there's a qualitative difference, not a quantitative one, that is really at play here. So his view works like this. He believes that first, culture is moving through history, and it's happening over long periods of time. You can't just change the hearts and minds of people in a single generation and change the world. There's forces at play that go far beyond just individuals. There's symbolic capital in culture, meaning in plain English, some people matter more than others. Some culture shapers have more influence than others. Culture operates not from the bottom up, as the traditional model says, but actually from the top down. From what he would call elites, or maybe as he would say from the center outwards is his view. Cultural elites are at the center. The vast majority of change comes from the center or close to the center. You can imagine where he thinks most Christians are. Those on the periphery have little power to affect culture and quality is more valuable than quantity. Let me illustrate his view. His view is that the cultural elites are here, okay? And that all cultural ideas emanate outward from there. That's his view of how culture works. By the way, it isn't just his view. He cites a bunch of other smart people I've never heard of, but you know, <laughs> um, you know he's trying to obviously, I mean, he's footnoted his book like crazy. I can't, I just keep referring to, I mean, every chapter is like 100 footnotes. But it's been very well received by a lot of academics. I guess I trust the research. That's his view on how culture works. Here's the counterbalance. So if culture is really influenced from the center outward, his argument is that maybe Christians are really at the periphery. That's the reason we can't seem to affect anything. Consider this for a second. If we move this over, take the knowledge influencers in society. According to Hunter, these are the influencers of our knowledge in society. And I want you to think as I go through these, which ones are Christians represented at where they would actually have a significant voice? They go from the most influential down to the least influential as I go down the list. Academic think tanks, elite research universities, law schools and public policy schools, elite opinion magazines and journals, elite book publishers, first and second tier colleges, high-end journalism, seminaries and divinity schools, elite private schools, practical journalism, mass market book publishing, churches and places of worship, public education, Christian schools. <laughs> so which ones have any influencers that are significantly altering the direction? If these are the things that influence culture, he would point out probably these. Seminaries, practical journalism, there's some good representation by Christians, churches and places of worship, and of course Christian schools which is, in his mind, at the bottom of the list of knowledge influencers. So you can see that if you're going to talk about ideas emanating from the center and going outward, if he's right, we're just not there. That's why I think Megan's point is so poignant about the idea that maybe we need to be thinking about the ways in which we're not present. And whether we decide to cure that or not is a totally different issue that he's going to continue with. Here's the media and artistic influences on our culture, again, from most influential to least. Visual arts, literature and poetry, classical and orchestral music, theater and dance, museums, public television, public radio, public museums, film, jazz music, high-end advertising agencies, primetime television, mass marketing movies, popular music, cable television. Which of these have a strong Christian bend or influence where you could say they're influencing the direction of these institutes of culture. None of them. <laughs> it was close to none of them. Is the last two have a significant influence. Popular music, and I was even trying to think of who that might be. Uh, and cable television. Maybe the TBN or I don't know, maybe something else on cable. <laughs> um, we're not there. His idea was, and would be pretty obvious at this point, in its current form, whether we debated whether we should or shouldn't, the practical reality might be we can't. That's his thesis. Where we presently stand, all this language about changing the world and changing culture. Now remember, again, I'm not talking about changing individuals and their lives and their conditions and the things we might do to bring justice, bring peace, bring the gospel, whatever that is. That's still part of the church's mandate, and he doesn't even go after that. He thinks that's exactly right. 
But we always seem to want to then look at the broader culture and think, and we can also change this as well. And he would say, that would be hard based on where you're represented and where you're not. You know that when we did our first week, I brought in some clips from the radio, from National Public Radio. And I told you that afterwards, someone came up and said, you know, it's really unfair that you would use those clips. Because they make Christians look really bad. And they're intentionally used by a liberal station. Right. You see where public radio ranks on there? National Public Radio is one of the key influencers of people in this country. It just is. I can't control that. It's just the outcome. That's what people listen to. That's where they get their news. That's where they get their information. Or from an elite journal. You know, they're not going to read it in Christianity Today as much as I love that magazine. They're going to read something like Foreign Policy Magazine. Or they're going to read The Economist. That's where they're going to get news. At least that's where the elites are getting it. And that's what matters ultimately in his opinion. Push back, Monique. And that's kind of why like I'm saying is this idea, which was my original question, the idea of changing all of society as a whole, this huge utopia, taking away from real impact, because it's like a misdirected like vision. Whereas if we took it to the individual level and we said, hey, if you're a Christian, don't segregate yourself. Instead of going to APU, go to Harvard, go to Stanford, go to whatever, get this job, work for like and a prestigious economic journal right from your perspective do something within like your means affect the people in your immediate like capabilities and then you will start to see some changes and i don't think that it's necessarily like less valid if we don't see the whole world change and become like you know christians or whatever christian values if you can make small changes, that's incredibly valid. And the road is narrow, and it is difficult, and like we're fighting against sin and all that, and it's like a battle we can't win. So to me, it's like misfocusing. It's like focus on something else, focus on where you can make an impact, and make an impact. All right, I'll agree with most of that. And I do want to point out, you mentioned like go to Harvard. If anyone's noticed, there's like a revolving door between the administration and Harvard University right now, where like people are going back and forth. Um, I mean, Harvard seems to be like the school that's producing the national leaders right now or going back to another elite institution that's not mentioned on here would be the Supreme Court, right? I mean, you've got nine justices on the Supreme Court and none of them have any kind of traditional Protestant background, but you do have three Jewish members now on the Supreme Court, which again, by proportionate representation is astounding. And that is one of the reasons that, he would, that people would say, like when these decisions are being decided by courts, they're going to be decided by what I would term the courts are elites. And they're going to be getting their information and their views from that perspective. And I think what you'll see the differences between like Christian culture as a whole and like, because being part of the Jewish community or whatever, different communities that might be small make a big impact. The focus is not, you're going to turn the world into a Jewish world. The focus is like, all right, you got to be the best person you can be. Education is important to this household. Like those are the things that happen that build character and that's where you make like the impact. So yeah, anyways. Okay, right. My question really about both of those two areas that you showed is, is it really that Christians aren't there or are they there but they're too afraid to be vocal and show their point of view? And if, if they're not there, why? And if they are there but they're not speaking out, why? Those would be my two. Well, I'll give you an answer that he gives. For example, he looks at the issue of academia. So he looks at Christian academia and says, no one's going to take this seriously. All right? He looks at Christians in secular academia or what he would call like the elite places going back to like knowledge the elite academic research places, all right? I would suspect if he's standing right here, his answer would be, they're basically stigmatized into silence. I mean, if you're really gonna be a legitimate academician, you can't say things like, I don't believe in evolution, or you can't say things like, uh, I really think that Christ rose from the dead. Like, you're just, you're outcast for saying that. So, so I don't know about every single one of these things, but I would suspect that you're kind of right on both accounts, that they're either not very represented because of their beliefs, but even when they are, we tend to self-edit and self-censor. And I'll tell you, I have faced that and seen it constantly, at least in both law and the law schools. So is that just because like, if you speak out, no one will take you seriously, you'll never advance your career, and then you're not doing it. Is that really what goes on? Because Absolutely. you vocalize your views and so you can't vocalize them? Absolutely. That goes on, but that's not the end of it. You yourself <laughs> do it. Because you sense that as soon as you actually say what you really want to say, that you're going to be not taken seriously. And I, I'll, in public confession, I've committed this sin myself. So will you be able to even make an impact if you send more Christians into these areas if they're not going to speak up about 
Like, what's the point of even sending more and more Christians into these elite areas if they're never going to say anything anyway? I'm, I'm not saying that's what should happen. I don't, I don't think just sending Christians to Harvard makes any sense anyways. I mean, good night. I came to APU and left not, well, not a, not a Christian, but I mean, sending people to Christian schools doesn't make you a Christian or it doesn't make you want to be any more of a, like a... Jeremy, Jeremy, you're breaking up. I can't hear you in there. But you have to allow for the possibility that going to Harvard or, or like another good school is just going to change your mind. And, and, and it's not going to maybe change your mind against faith necessarily, but I mean, there, I, I suspect, um, and I know this is true, that there are intelligent professors uh, at these schools who, who are religious, and I'm not afraid to say they're religious, but they're not religious in the way that, you know, Bob Jones or Dobson, all those people are. You know, again, they maybe it's not that they don't talk about it, but maybe they just have developed a different understanding of it, or it plays out differently. And I, I don't know, but I just it seems weird to me to even say let's send people to wherever. Okay, let me let me just make this clear. I'm not prescribing, and nor do I want to present Hunter as prescribing like the reasons that people aren't there. I think his ultimate point is they're not. Right. So so we could try to send them. Uh, it may make a difference, it may, may, it may not. He may actually come back and write another book that says even after they infiltrated all this thing, it still didn't make a difference. Or the cultural shifts were still so great. But at this point, what's clearly observable to most people is they're just not even there. And I would say that a good critique that I find is that most of it comes from the fact that for a while now, Christianity has had an anti-intellectual bend. All right, it's resisted the academy, it's resisted the elite areas of culture, and in other areas, for example, like in these areas, in media and artistic influences, it's tended to build its own structures. So it would do Christian television, Christian radio, Christian music, Christian dance. I mean, you could go on and on, just adding the word Christian to everything. And as I've said, Christian is always the adjective that weakens the thing it's describing, just by adding it on there. So whatever you take, it will weaken it somehow. But that is a critique that needs to be heard loud and clear because when you make separate structures, you're not even giving a chance to get into these structures. Now, maybe at one time they were all Christian. You could look back at the history of some of these things and say maybe at some point everything was. You know, if you go back to like classical music and, you know, all those kinds of things. But again, we're focusing on today. Because if we can't or we're not there, then let's just do what the church is supposed to do and let's just move off the topic and stop pretending we're going to change the world. And I'm not advocating that. I'm just pushing you to tell me why we shouldn't do that. Megan. Um, I think it's funny. I was thinking about this a little bit today and reflecting on my time at APU and wondering, like, why aren't there more people who are trying to excel and who are, and, and I want to be one of those people. Um, and I, I wonder how much a question of our values it is because I think, like, for me, I can, I can harken back to so many more conversations where my parents will, like, want to know about my dating potential instead of like, Megan, how are you using your brain? Like, how are you using God's gifts? It's more like, Megan, have you met any boys lately? And I, I think like, bless their hearts, I love my parents, but I think that a lot of times as society, just like you are saying, where there's an anti-intellectual bent, we just want to be loving and we just want to be kind and we just want to raise good families and, and not that there's anything wrong with that, but I think we have to evaluate too, if we do want to help inform culture, how do we get there? And maybe it's going to take valuing some things yet that we haven't traditionally valued. And I'll also go on record to say I went to APU, and I think that it is a good school. I didn't say it was a bad school. Right, right, right. No, but, but here's the thing that I'm realizing as I am an alumni. I don't think that I will change the world by spending four years here and just attending APU alumni events every year. I, I think that it's given me a hunger to get out there more and figure out what it takes to change the world. But I, I do think it's a great point that we can't just stay in our little cloister and expect you know, to, to move beyond that and make an impact. Okay. I think what I'm trying to summarize for us is the importance of discussion tonight, whether you agree with it or not, is to still get us thinking about the important question. We know what the church is supposed to do on the big ticket items that we agreed on in the first week. I'm still wrestling with the question of can we do something beyond that? Should we? Tonight is more, are we even able to? And we have to think through that because some of us, even if we say yes, we should be engaged, here is somebody who would say think long and hard as to whether we're even able. One more thing that we're going to start looking at next week is one critique 
that Hunter makes on all ideologies is in this country especially. We see an effort to politicize everything. Now that doesn't mean what you think it means, like make everything just political in the common sense. It means literally turning to the state to solve every problem. We used to have a public sphere that was different than the political sphere. The political sphere was kind of like a subset of the public sphere. So we used to have a time in this country where you could say, like, politics is one way to solve things that are of the public concern. Hunter points out that more and more politics is the only way. So that no matter where you are on the ideological spectrum, what you're doing is you're fighting for laws that go your way, or legislation, or court decisions. Everything is becoming political. And from all sides, whether you're on the radical right, whether you're on the progressive left, everyone is turning to politics. And so next week what we're going to be looking at is kind of right back to where we started. Should Christians be involved? And if so, how? And if not, what are the alternatives? Can we even change the world? How do we do it? Now that we have some different tools, we're going to come back and look at the, the different sides of Christianity as they are trying to win the hearts and minds and win political battles. And Hunter's critique will continue about people on the left and the right, and even the kind of Anabaptist position that we've looked at from Harawas and Yoder. He has a critique of that as well, and why all three have been somewhat ineffective in changing culture. No matter what side of the spectrum you're on, we'll look at why. And then in the last week, we'll probably figure out what we're going to do. So here's kind of our, where we're going. Next week, we'll look at political engagement as a result of all this. In the last week of this series, we're just going to talk about formulating something, if we can, from this consensus that we've gone through. My closing thought tonight is I still think we have to wrestle through this issue of if we see things going on in society that really do cut to the heart of what we believe, can we really just continue on with the other church mandates? And that's going to be a hard one to think through. I'll talk about it more next week. But that issue that I was wrestling with with Monique about if you believe that something is wrong, like abortion, or like watching people die of hunger, or watching people enslaved and not doing anything about it, can we really just continue on to do the other things, whatever they may be, and ignore those things, and still say that our religion is right and true, and derivative of that thing that comes from what the Lord instructed us to do, and that's going to be a very uh, difficult thing to wrap up and come up with. Let's pray and close up. Thank you for all your comments tonight. I know this is kind of heady stuff, but I think it's getting us somewhere. Lord God, I uh, ask you tonight for forgiveness. If we have in any way taken away from the power that you have to change things with or without these simple human institutions that we've created. Lord, we're looking at the reality on the ground and we see it through human eyes, but we know that it is true that you have your hand over all of human history. That these things that we see, that we ask questions about, about can we and should we, in the end, Lord, you are doing the things that you want and you're going to bring it out to the outcome that you want in the end. But Lord, still honor our time. Honor this time that we steward for you, using our minds, trying to become better witnesses for you. That's ultimately what we're trying to do, is to become more conversant with this culture, to be able to avoid the pitfalls, to be able just to study enough, Lord, that others might hear what we have to say. And Lord, I thank you for the people who are beyond this walls who will also struggle with the same material. Thank you for the gifts of communication that you've given us in this day and age. Pray all these things and offer them to you tonight as humble stewards who have just taken this little time, this little talent that we have, and hopefully we'll make something through it, through this group. Thank you, Lord, for each person here. Pray this in your name. Amen.